The Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. All right, ladies and gentlemen, when you saw the list of names and the fact that these are authors who've worked on a project called America's Haunted Road Trip, you wonder if these are ghost hunters in disguise. And they're not ghost hunters, they're not the Three Stooges, but one of our guests, John Kachuba, is the ringleader of this little enterprise. We also have Michael Varhola and Laura Laddick. Now, John, since you're the ringleader or the person in charge, what led you to perform this kind of effort to develop the series? Well, I can't be in charge of these guys. There's no question I'm not in charge of them. But we're more of an autonomous collective. There you go. They're on their own. But I, you know, the idea of the haunted, America's Haunted Road Trip was that we wanted to um, we wanted to include haunted locations all across the country in the various states so that people can actually go out and uh, you know check out these places for themselves if they're interested. And so what I was looking for was people in various locations that I thought you know, had good knowledge of haunted locations and the paranormal community and, and had those kind of connections. And we got good writers that had those kind of connections. You know, Laura in New Jersey with um, New Jersey Ghost Hunter Society. and Mike Oh, Donner Laura is, is a ghost hunter. I wanted to clarify she that. She is a ghost hunter. Yes, yeah. yeah, she is. So we have one out of three is a ghost hunter. Well, probably two out of three. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm a ghost fleer. <laughs> Well, I was going to say, and, and Mike will put in there as, uh, I'd say three out of three. I mean, we're all, the thing with the American Haunters Road Trip is that all the writers are investigators as well. I mean, they don't write about places that they don't go to themselves personally. So from that point of view, I would have to say that they're all ghost hunters. So we have the real ghost hunters here. There you go. Wow. Okay. Now let's kind of dissect your point of view going into this and then we can talk more about what happened about the experiences things that might have happened to you john how did you get involved in this crazy business of the paranormal well you know i grew up in connecticut um, a lot of history there obviously that's a paranormal place definitely absolutely it's very paranormal uh, but you know early on i had the chance to meet ed and lorraine warren um, you know kind of known as america's sort of premier ghost hunters i guess uh, and uh, had a chance to meet them and, and learn from them a little bit. And so my interest developed at that point, although I never really wrote anything about it until 2004 with Ghost Hunting Ohio. But that's that's kind of what piqued my interest originally, was sort of growing up in a location that had a lot of old history and then having the occasion to meet and uh, sort of learn from some of the best early on. Laura, how did you get involved in the paranormal and hunting for ghosts? Is this something that you grew up with? Uh, you said, Mommy, I want to be a ghost hunter. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't on the horizon or in the college prep classes that I was doing in high school. But it was, I mean, I had had different things, like stories and stuff my mother had told me when I was a kid growing up. And I could tell, you know, she had this interest in, in it enough where if they went to a haunted place, she'd want to stay. My father wouldn't want to. She read everything by Stephen King. But the clincher for me was, you know, I, I finished out eighth grade when we were living in a what was a, really a haunted house, and I went away from it. Whoa, you know, whoa, 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 stop again. You were living in a haunted house? Yeah, it was a rental home. It was a 140-year-old house. And, and where was it located? In Chatham Township, New Jersey. Okay. It was all my grandmother could find on the spur of the moment. Um, she didn't know it was haunted. She just found something because my father's job was <coughs> transferring him so quickly. 
from Jacksonville, Florida, that, you know, she's like, oh, don't worry, I found a house, you know, and it's right next to the school, so Laura can go there, and blah, 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 and okay, fine, we move up. So I deal with all that, and then I still kind of, you know, you grow up, you go on with your life, and later on in life, when I'm already married close to 10 years and have our first son, my then-husband says, hey, they're doing these ghost tours, and I can't even for the life of me imagine how one tours a ghost, and I'm like, yeah, all right, I'll go, you know, so we go, and it turns out to be at the spy house, and had a couple experiences while we were on that tour, and got to talking about it afterwards, and we started going back and doing more, a couple seances that the tour guide, Jane Doherty, held at the spy house, and then I worked out a barter deal with her to transcribe the tapes from her seances in exchange for going on ghost investigations with her, and from there, it just kind of grew. We, we formed Ghost Hunters Incorporated because we actually wanted, my husband and I at the time, we just wanted to do more investigating, and Jane was going off to write her book, and um, even after our marriage demised, we, I kept the NJGHS going, and here I am today. <laughs> now, Laura, I don't want to really get into this too personally, but it wasn't the ghost hunting that destroyed your marriage. Oh, no. Oh, no. sure. Okay. No. I realize that marriages are so difficult these days that, you know, it doesn't take third party or third creature influences. I would say this, the second husband had the biggest issue with it, which I found ironic because I even had it in, when I had an ad on Yahoo Personals. It was in my ad saying, this is what I do, I'm a ghost hunter, I run the largest organization in New Jersey, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, when I push came to shove and I found out that he was like, oh, and everything with that stupid ghost hunting. And I'm like, what? <laughs> but you knew. It's not like I sprung it on you after we walked down the aisle. You know? <laughs> so, But, you know, such is life. All right, Michael, we don't want to leave you abandoned here. You are also a ghost hunter, right? You've been outed yeah. as a ghost hunter. What's that? You have been outed as a ghost hunter. I've been, I've been outed as a ghost hunter. Yeah, and and for all practical purposes, and certainly for purposes of this book, uh, it certainly would be fair to say that I am a ghost hunter. But I would add a few provisos to that. Uh, one is that I've had an interest in what used to be known as the occult, and and more recently has been referred to as the paranormal. Uh, really, you know, for most of my life, for more than thirty years, and ghost hunting is really just one fairly narrow, discrete part of that overall interest. So I am now writing what are essentially travel guides about visiting haunted places throughout the states of Virginia and Maryland, uh, but my interests in the subject are, are much broader. And as I found in a number of the sites that I've been to, sometimes you're not just talking about ghosts at any given site. You're talking about paranormal phenomena that go beyond just the issue of ghosts. For example, if you've had a house that was resided in by a witch or someone who had occult or magical or paranormal powers. So so I have a broader interest uh, in the subject. And Beyond that, I think the term ghost hunting is cute. It's kind of a the vogue term. Everybody knows today what you mean when you say ghost hunting, whereas nobody would have known what you were talking about 10 years ago if you said ghost hunting, um, or most people wouldn't have. But I'm not a hunter, per se. I, I'm, a, I'm a hunter uh, the way a guy who goes on a photo safari is a hunter. I observe, and I collect information, and for purposes of this series, I write travel guides based on that, that information in my observations. So I'm not hunting anything, and really the fact that I've detected anything at all at these sites uh, has purely been um, really uh, a matter of, of 
providence and you know just for the most part uh just just observation i don't use a lot of toys or meters or or a lot of the other things that you see on these shows so i'm a ghost hunter in the way that uh you know byron and keats were ghost hunters uh more so than the way that the guys you're seeing on tv nowadays are ghost hunters all right now when you've researched to decide what places to write about how did you vet the haunted house how did you decide this is something that's really worth including in a book well there are a number of criteria one is that it had some sort of lore associated with it so none of what's in the book is just something that i just manufactured out of whole cloth. There had to be a, a story that resided in some sort of third-party tradition. So all of these places have some sort of a tradition, reputation of being haunted places. So that was one criteria. Uh, another criteria, and this, this next one applies to the series as a whole, not just to uh, my book, but to, to all of the books, and it was one of the guidelines that I operated under, is that all of the places in my book, in all the books, are publicly accessible. So these are, in fact, travel guides. Uh, we're not writing about some house uh, in Williamsburg, and we're not going to tell you where it is, and it's a private residence, and you can't really go there. No, actually, uh, everything that we write about in all of our books uh, are places that people can visit, and we give instructions and, and information on how and when and where uh, to go to these sites that we cover. Uh, so public accessibility was one of the criteria that we included. Uh, and then I'd say uh, the rest of the criteria for me were sort of qualitative. What places hadn't been written up somewhere else? You know, what value could I give to this book that somebody wasn't going to get somewhere else? So we have a number of places in my book that are not covered in any other books. Uh, what places would I go on the record as saying I believe to be actually haunted? Uh, of the 30 places I cover, I would say that I believe five of them are, in fact, for sure haunted. Any of the 30 could be, but, but five of them, I believe, actually definitely are. So those were ones that uh, we obviously wanted to include. And then just general interest. I mean, we got to the point, for example, uh, where we had exclusionary criteria. We wanted to stop including places that had been Civil War field hospitals, not because they weren't interesting, but because I could have done a whole book of just 30 Civil War field hospitals that are reputed to be haunted. Uh, Why is it that Civil War field hospitals have to be haunted necessarily? that they have to be, but if you travel around the state of Virginia, you don't go very far. You can't uh, visit too many of the older communities in Virginia without finding at least one site in each of them that was, you know, cannibalized uh, and used as a field hospital, whether it be a school or a church or something like that, used as a field hospital during the Civil War, and for the last 140 years uh, has gained a reputation for having the spirits of, of Civil War dead occupying it. There are just a lot of them. Virginia was ravaged by the Civil War. Hundreds of thousands of people either uh, were killed or wounded uh, or suffered trauma uh, in the state of Virginia during the course of the Civil War. And that psychic trauma has its effect, has its lasting effect. <laughs> Hi, 
Hi, this is Bill Burns from UFO Magazine and UFO Hunters. You know, there are several ways that you can get UFO, UFO Magazine. Yeah, we know, Bill. We know, we know, we know. Just shut up. Just give us one way. Don't tell us you're psychic and, you know, give 8,000 phone numbers and take 15 minutes of our time. We just want to hear the show. Just tell us how we can get UFO Magazine in one way. Okay, okay. Just go to www.ufomag.com. Subscribe online. You happy? Yeah, was that so hard? Actually, harder than you know. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. We're taking America's Haunted Road Trip with John Kachuba, Laura Laddick, and Michael Vrahola, and... I have a question here, and I know David is chamming in the bit. I've dominated the first part of the show. I'm going to ask one more question, and maybe we'll start with John. John, amongst the haunted houses that you checked out for this book, did you find some were, you know, not haunted? Maybe someone's pulling a prank on you? <laughs> well, you know, that's that's a important criteria, too. Mike was talking about some ways of, you know, including or excluding houses or locations. And one is certainly anything that seemed, you know, spurious or, or doubtful or perhaps even uh-huh. hoax. I can honestly say, though, that I that that didn't happen in the places that I was at. Now, having said that, there were certainly places, in fact, actually the opposite, places I discovered that were apparently haunted and we had some permission from the owner to go check it out and everything else. And then when when it came down to actually write the chapter, having the owner say, you know, on second thought, I really don't want you to write about this place. And so then having actually to pull it, um, pull the piece. I, I did that with a couple locations, which was kind of a surprise. It's sort of the, the reverse, you know. But I think, you know, it's very possible, uh, I won't lie about it, I think it's very possible that because these places are uh, accessible to the public, and um, when we, we're saying that, we're talking about places that might be restaurants or hotels or museums or, you know, anything like that where the public can go, and perhaps the owners could perhaps make a buck on increased attendance. Uh, there is a tendency, perhaps, for somebody maybe to say, hey, my place is haunted, you know, and then we have to kind of check it out. But I think that's where, again, we have to look at um, what evidence might have been there before, you know, had people known about this location before we came around and, and said to somebody who wanted to write a book, was there kind of a history of hauntings already in those locations? And I think for the most part, that's, I know in Laura's book and Mike's book, and in my too, that that's been the case in those locations, that they've had a record, you know, of of being uh, haunted or having some paranormal activity to them before we came around and said, hey, we're going to write a book about it. So I would say we've been lucky. I don't know about, you know, Mike and Laura would say the same thing, but uh, so far I think we've been, uh, I think we've avoided any, hoaxers. Uh, hopefully there's not a lot of them out there, but I'm sure somewhere along the line we might find one and hopefully, uh, you know, we'll uncover them before we write about them. David? Yeah, I've got a question for the three of you. I want to start with Laura here. Michael indicated that the locations that are discussed in the books 
are ones that are publicly accessible, but at the same time, it sounds like the three of you have been looking into these topics for a while. Laura, starting with you, what is the most compelling haunted location that you found that is not publicly accessible that uh, created an impression on you, that left you wondering what was really happening there? Well, I guess that was the house I had to finish out eighth grade in, living with two ghosts and having the different things that, you know, and I was only 14 at the time and really had no background or information on hauntings the way I do now and an understanding of it. So it was, that was definitely a big impression. And years, you know, you fast forward years later into adulthood and there was an experience that I had when my family was younger, you know, when I, when I was still married the first time, and that was because friends brought a Ouija board over and ended up bringing something pretty bad into our house. And mm. then recently, friends of mine, their house, actually, they just sold it. They're going to move up to Salem. But they've been living with <laughs> four ghosts, and they're right here in my town. And so, you know, I've been over their house and gotten pictures when I wasn't even ghost hunting, just like taking pictures of the decorations or we were having a party, and you get all these very strange appearances. <laughs> One was like an outline of a woman's body without a head standing on the stairs, and I kept saying, no, there's something wrong with the camera, or you know. But it's interesting. Those are things, places that, you know, I can't write about, I can't put in, in these books, because people, well, the one first house that I lived in in eighth grade is not even standing anymore they've since leveled it but um what sort of manifestations did you experience there when we first arrived my father had all he could do to open the front door and he's he's a good sized guy you know six one and he really had to use his body weight and wail with his shoulder with the key in the lock to get the door to open and yet the next day my brother and i had come home from school and there were still boxes everywhere we had the tv balanced on the stereo speakers and we were just kind of making do till the weekend you know and we're trying to do homework in the living room, and that same front door just blew wide open without any effort. And we looked at each other and didn't say a word, and I got up and I closed it. And it happened two more times, and on the third time, for whatever reason, I said, hey, Mabel, welcome home. And I slammed the door, and then it stayed shut. And she would basically, I intuitively picked up that it was a female, and I just nicknamed her Mabel, and she would do this every day after school. She'd come in and open that door, and I'd have to close it. Um, when my father made it a point when he put this antique three-way lamp and he explained to all of us that he wanted the bulbs to go from 20, 40, 60, and the next night he came home after work and turned the lamp on, it was 60, 40, 20, and he thought one of us was playing around, but none of us had touched it. And, you know, and then the scary one, there was like a male energy or spirit that pretty much stayed in the basement. I don't like basements anyway, and this was, like I said, a 140-year-old house, so it didn't have a finished basement. It was the kind with those blind crickets stuck all over the walls. It was just disgusting. But one night I was I was asleep in bed and I do remember, you know, all of a sudden hearing the footsteps coming up the stairs and I, I looked at the clock and it was one o'clock in the morning and I thought, that's weird. My father always goes to bed at 11 after the 10 o'clock news. And my cat was sleeping on my pillow just above my head and the footsteps stopped outside my door. My cat stood up, her back was arched, she's hissing, her tail was all inflated. And I knew it, I'm like, that's not my dad. So I got up the nerve to like jump out of bed, run and jump into my parents' bed. And the next morning I told my mother, she's like, why did you come into bed? What was wrong? And and I said, what time did Daddy go to bed? And she said, well, 11, as usual. And I said, well, this was 1 o'clock in the morning. Somebody walked up the stairs and stood outside my room and 
my mother starts screaming and my father, somebody broke in, and everybody's running around, we're trying to see if anybody broke in, and all of a sudden my father goes, well, wait a minute, if anybody had broken in, the dog would have barked, and we're like, oh, okay, so then it was kind of like, all right, this, you know, being the, the devout Catholics that we are, <laughs> when you have one of those experiences, then it's all of a sudden the whole family goes quiet, like, this is one of those things we don't discuss, you know, <laughs> and then the day oh, just boy. went on, you know. <laughs> now, now, wait, there was a dog in the place, and the dog didn't react to this at all? No, not at all. Digger, he was asleep on my brother's bed, but my cat reacted. Michael, same question put to you. What's the most interesting uh, case you ever looked at that's not in the books because it's not a publicly accessible case? I would say the one that has just stuck with me the longest, the one that I think is uh, the the most compelling, and, and it's not one where I saw a ghost or I can really even put my finger on anything in, in particular, uh, but that was the investigations I did in the Paris catacombs uh, back in the, the late 80s uh, when I was living in Paris. This is just an amazing, incredible place. If, if you ever go to Paris, if you ever visit Paris, there is a public tour that goes through a few subterranean blocks of the catacombs of Paris. But but essentially, this is a necropolis on a scale beyond almost anything else in the world. I mean, it's hundreds and hundreds of miles of passageway, uh, many of which are stacked with bones. There are more than a million people, the remains of more than a million people, buried in passageways and caverns and chambers, interspersed with underground lakes and stairways. And intellectually, I know. That, that, that the time I spent uh, in those catacombs, uh, intellectually, I know that I was physically 100 feet beneath the streets of Paris in limestone tunnels that have been there for, you know, some of them for 3,000 years. But some part of me really, 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 really feels that that I was in the land of the dead. You really feel like you're on another plane of existence when you're going through a place like that, when you're crawling around through passageways that are stacked five feet deep with bones so you only have a couple of feet above you and you have to crawl to get through them. When you go into cut rock subterranean chapels and there are walls of skulls stacked all along uh, the uh, edges of the stone walls around you. So I would say the most otherworldly experience I've had related to places uh, occupied by the dead would be the catacombs of Paris. Uh, now, I didn't see, you know, I didn't see ghosts when I was there. Uh, there were no such things as digital cameras in those days, or at least not ones that, you know, people could readily own, so I don't have orb photography. Uh, I wasn't running a, uh, a recorder, so I don't have any EVP. So, once again, you know, uh, I'm not really, really big into the toys today, and I wasn't into the toys at all back then. So, I can't really show you evidence that this is a haunted site, but I can say that, that what really struck me on, on, a, on a visceral and a spiritual level more than any other site I've been to was those catacombs. You know, I want to ask you one devil's advocate question here, which some of Absolutely. our listeners will definitely want me to pose or David to pose, and that is, wouldn't those toys help? in order to see that something here is really happening and not a product of your imagination, say? Absolutely. I, I think that they would, but, I mean, sure, uh, I'll say yes, but, but let me answer the question a little more fully, uh, if I could. 
you can get false readings on on toys. Uh, a lot of people say that uh, orbs, for example, which I take to be very compelling, uh, simply are meaningless. A lot of people who uh, have been ghost hunting for 10 years or 20 years, uh, especially ones who have been ghost hunting longer and uh, whose experiences predate digital photography, they simply dismiss this sort of evidence as meaningless. So, yeah, you can turn up uh, evidence with the various kinds of equipment that, that some people use. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't use equipment. I'm not saying that I probably might not want to be using a little bit more of it. I'm not very technologically inclined, so that's my main reason. Uh, you know, aesthetics aside, there's some uh, technological barriers that have kept me from using a lot of, of things like that. But, but that said, no matter what data you've collected with this equipment, there are an awful lot of people out there, uh, including experienced ghost hunters, who will just say, oh, well, that doesn't prove anything. It doesn't mean anything. And I think that's something that we need to keep in mind with this subject. I say right in the introduction of my book, I say this every time I talk to people about this, I'm not trying to prove anything to anyone. I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything. This is what I experienced. This is the story behind the place. If you want to go there yourself, you can. Uh, you don't believe this is what I experienced? That's fine. I, you know, uh, I, I, I don't lose any sleep over that because a lot of this stuff is borderline unbelievable. And I, I'm not in the position of trying to be a proselyte and sell people on the idea that ghosts are real or that these places are haunted. No, this is uh, what I experienced. And if uh, you want, go on and try to experience it yourself. That's pretty much my attitude on the subject. Okay, Laura. What's yes. your viewpoint about the toys and the machines to help you check things out? Well, given what most of them cost, I'm a little offended to refer to them as toys. Some of the stuff is... That was me, sorry. What every day person would have... You, by the way, fighting parents. is allowed. Okay, Laura, dismiss it. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, uh, there's some things that... I mean, none of it is what I would call a toy. I, I guess, you know, if you want to just make light of it, yeah, okay, so it's a toy or a gizmo. But most of it is stuff that people have, like digital DVD camcorders because they want to record their kids' ballet or soccer game, what have you. Most people nowadays have digital cameras, and... Yeah, I hearken back to the days of 35 millimeter and being stuck at one end of the color spectrum or the other, depending on the film you were shooting. And and it was interesting when we started getting orbs. And yeah, now you, you get bored of orbs because you realize there's such a high rate for false positive with them. And unless you have some other of the toys registering a reading concurrent with the picture of an orb, that will add some validation to the orb, but nine times out of ten, it's just dust, pollen, pet dander, what have you. But it's interesting to have the things like thermal scanners, EMF detectors. If I could ever afford a thermal imaging camera, that would be phenomenal. You know, there's other devices that help to correlate what you're experiencing. I've, I've even had the opposite happen where we feel a cold spot. But you run that thermal scanner, and it's, it's the same ambient temperature. And that's something that's just bizarre. I don't know if it's paranormal, but it's odd that everybody's standing there going, do you feel that? It's cold. And I'll scan everybody and go, no, you're all, it's all the same temperature. But at least you have the equipment in that sense to take the pictures, to take the digital recordings. I mean, I think it's good with the EVPs, which is the electronic voice phenomena, where, you know, see, our eyes and our ears for some reason, they're operating at a lower frequency than what the ghosts are appearing at or speaking at, and that's where this digital equipment 
um, comes into play, and it records these things. So that way we can play it back and we can see what we missed. We can hear what we didn't hear when we were standing right there. I've had it where the ghosts are probably hovering right next to you, and they're interjecting all their little comments, but you don't hear it. But you got your recorder going, and you play it back after the fact, and you're like, oh, no, whose voice was that, you know? And with all the technology today, you can even pull these files that you record digitally into the computer, so not only do you you hear a voice, you're able to see the voice path. That allows you to discern what your voice looks like, and then you can write on the monitor say, well, that's not my voice, you know. You're referring to looking at the waveforms of the recorded audio and differentiating based on the amplitude of the waveform what yeah. is you speaking, because that tends to have a, a high amplitude versus, let's say, a thing that's uh, an EVP that would show a much lower amplitude. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because... One of the many things that deeply annoys me about the TAPS Ghost Hunters show is uh, how these guys will have EVPs and basically don't even do the most basic normalization to bring up the volume of the stuff, indicating to me they just don't understand the technology. Another quick point about the orb stuff is that it, you know people, for some reason, have begun to think about orbs being predominant in the era of digital cameras, but really the fact of the matter is that, like you said, Lord, I mean, nine out of ten of these orb photographs are really the result of a flash and a lens being really close to one another. And that's not just, that. that is really the, the provenance of digital point-and-shoot cameras as well as 35-millimeter point-and-shoot cameras where you don't have a great amount of physical distance between the flash and the lens. So it's important that people understand that differentiation. But, Laura, a question... focus too. A lot of right. people come, come running over to me, and they're like, look at the side of that orb. And I'm like, did you call the shot? And they're going, what do you mean call the shot? Well, if you're standing next to someone who's shooting autofocus, you call the shot. You know, say, taking the shot. So everybody else knows to refrain and let you take the shot. But if you both right. took it within seconds of each other, you just took a picture of their autofocus beam. That's right. That's right. Let me take um, a shot at this before we go on. Hey, neighbors. The easiest online meeting service, GoToMeeting, just got easier. If you haven't tried GoToMeeting, now's the time, because the new version of GoToMeeting has fully integrated voice over IP. With this new total audio feature, you have more audio options by being able to conference through a phone or the web, save time, save money, and be more efficient. Hold an online meeting with GoToMeeting. Try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. Hi, this is Roger with eFoodsDirect.com, and I just wanted to welcome everyone from the Paracast Show. Hi to Gene and David and everybody out there. Listen, we're here to sponsor this radio show because we really like what Gene and what Dave are doing, and we'd like you to help us support them. Now, we are a long-term storable food company. However, the foods that we produce are low-moisture foods. They're very, very high quality, and you can live on them every day. You can literally cut your grocery bill in half or more than half, maybe as much as 60%, by buying bulk foods from 
from eFoodsDirect.com. But right now, a recession slash depression is on the way. We're advising people to sell the toys in the garage, hawk off the old jewelry you don't use, pour the money into food supplies before it's too late. I'm telling you, it could be too late. We also can provide water filtration, other needs. Call eFoodsDirect.com and let us continue to support Gene and David here. 800-715-4380. 800-715-4380. Or go to eFoodsDirect.com. That's eFoodsDirect.com. 1-800-715-4380. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely, enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk. We're talking to three members of the team that's involved in America's Haunted Rope Map, a series of books. We have the ringleader, so to speak, John Kachuba, Laura Laddick, and Michael Varhola. David. Regarding voice recorder or audio recording technology to capture EVPs. We once spoke to John Zaffis on this show, and um, I asked him about standardization among ghost hunting groups as far as audio recorders. One of the things I've noticed on, uh, again, the TAPS Ghost Hunter show is that they use relatively low-fidelity, low-quality voice recorders to do EVP captures, which to me is a bit counterintuitive. I would think that if you were out in the field capturing audio, you'd want to use something with a at least standard 20 to 20K frequency response, a, a decent professional audio recorder. Laura, in, in your work, have you found that people don't really talk about standards of equipment? And I'm just I'm wondering, have, have you what kind of audio recorder do you use? See, now you're getting more. I do have one member of the organization who's an audio engineer. So mm-hmm. he comes up with like taking some standard electronic devices and modifying them and enhancing them and that's great I don't understand a thing about it but when I was on just last week we did an investigation together and he was showing me and he's saying see how the harmonics are distorted and it should this is how the waveform should look and yet this is what it's doing and so I found all that fascinating but that was above and beyond I'm still working with a Sony handheld digital audio recorder and I have had great results with it you know it's very simple you know I always tell people when you're doing it you just push record don't sit there if it has a voice activated don't bother with that because the time it takes to activate you may have missed the EVP But, um, you know, as far as, like, the higher-end stuff, I don't probably – I spent 168 bucks on this device when it came out, and they're probably a lot cheaper now. I don't have a budget to go out and buy something that sounds as technically gifted as what you're describing, and I probably wouldn't know thing one without being trained on how to use it, you know, which which I'm open to. I really think – you know, and getting to what you were saying about a standardization, it would be great if we all could do that and agree on this is what we're all going to use and to kind of, it would give us, I guess, a better breath of comparison and contrast of mm-hmm. the information that we're collecting. Right now, it's like, well, I'm working off a of Sony. What do you have? Well, I have, you know, whatever model they're using. And, I, I, you know, and it's so funny. I have still got one member who still won't give up her analog cassette recorder, <laughs> you know. Well, it's effectively useless. Um, anything that has uh, moving mechanisms, you know, mm-hmm. tape head, capstan, that's basically useless. I-, I think there's been certainly a move towards solid-state recorders for the simple reason that there are no moving parts. Thus, there, there right. there's uh, much less of an opportunity to introduce extraneous sounds. You know, I- I'll just say something on the air here now. For about $170, one can get a Samson H2 recorder 
That is everything anyone would ever need to do EVP recording in terms of recording at high bit rates onto solid state media. In fact, the, the H2, the Samson H2, has a 360 recording ability. It actually records a full surround sound. It's, it's one of the only recorders in that price range that, that does that. I'm just kind of saying it now just sort of to start the conversation, but I think that it would make a lot of sense to, mm-hmm. to literally tell people to standardize on that piece of gear because it's very inexpensive. It does 360 recording. It records at high bit rates in a solid state medium. And I think that really kind of fits all the criteria. And, and the thing is that ultimately, you know, when I see people using these little voice recorders, like you said, voice activated, well, that's already a problem. That requires a certain right. amount of volume to turn on, and chances are uh, an EVP would not be generating that amount of volume to turn the thing on. Can I interject something about equipment? Sure. Just to start with, I, I don't want any of my earlier comments to be taken as being disparaging of equipment. And, uh, you know, uh, Laura didn't like my using the term toys. I think I'm the one that... Uh, oh, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. I just wanted to clear up for people that we're, we're not running around with stuff from Parker Brothers and Milton Bradley that we're actually yeah, using it, it sounds like... Speak for yourself using, there, please. Well, we're using pretty much the same ilk of equipment, uh, it, it sounds like. So I'm not disparaging the use of equipment in any way. And frankly... Frankly, I've gotten some results with my own equipment that I think is pretty compelling. So, so I do use equipment, and I do get results from it, and I have been pleased with it, and I'm not disparaging with it in any way. But what I would say are, are, are two things here, uh, or a couple things here. One is that there are many ways to approach the subject of ghost hunting. And anything, once it gets a TV show made about it, once it becomes a cultural fad, it, there just becomes this de facto uh, regulation of it. There's only a certain right way way to do it. And I don't think there is necessarily just one right way to do this. I would not want someone to think that they couldn't go to the sites in our book or go to other sites uh, and essentially do ghost hunting uh, if they didn't have this equipment. I wouldn't want people to think they need to have this equipment to be able to do these things. And frankly, I wouldn't want someone to think that going out and flinging a bunch of money at something uh, and buying a bunch of equipment is the only thing they need to be doing. So the equipment is perfect peripheral to the entire subject, I think. It has some value. I don't want to be dismissive of it, but the equipment itself is not enough, uh, and the lack of the equipment is not necessarily a showstopper. Well, it's not a showstopper, uh, except for the fact that instrumentation is a critical part of any scientific process. And right. If, right. So, so it doesn't hurt. At, at this point, when we talk about these topics, we, we have, you know, even if you talk about ghost hunting, and we talk about lots of stuff on the Paracast that instantly invokes the curtain of laughter. So when you're dealing with that kind of a situation, any kind of instrumentation that helps you create solid evidence is certainly useful. And, and we're not trying to say that you absolutely need this in order to go out and play with ghost hunting. But if what you want to do is come away with some kind of tangible results to show other people, you know, then it's obviously useful. We don't think you're disparaging technology but Gene and I, of course, we have to say this right out front, we are both technologists. Mm-hmm. Technology is both what we work with for a living. So, you know, I'm the kind of person that says, you know, I, in fact, I was just teaching at Yale this morning. I'm teaching uh, scenic designers how to use digital technology. And so what you, you show them is that, look, this is just another tool. It's not going to do your work for you. It's not going to make miracles right. happen. But certainly it's an incredibly important tool and in, in terms of certain, certainly creating media, all tools are useful. In terms of 
investigating paranormal phenomena, all tools are useful, but there's no tool that replaces the human brain. Well, exactly so. Exactly so. I think you're absolutely right. And and I think you alluded to something important here. Uh, you and Gene are technology guys, and this is how you approach this subject. Everybody, I think, is going to have their own tools, if they're inclined to be interested in this, uh, with which they can approach the subject. I'd say that Laura takes a much, much more scientific approach than I do. I take more of a what? Uh, a poetic approach, uh, a romantic approach, a writer's approach. Uh, I'm not taking the approach you would take. And, you know, I wouldn't expect that my approach is the right one for everyone. Uh, I think there are probably two or three or a dozen or a hundred different ways that this subject can be approached. And all I want to emphasize is just because we see it being done one way on a television show doesn't mean uh, that's the only way to do it or the only fulfilling way to do it. And certainly, you're right. If you want tangible results, having the equipment, having the data that they provide, this is critical. But for the layman, for the 99% of people who watch the shows and want to go out to a site but don't necessarily need to provide uh, any kind of tangible proof for what they've experienced or for, you know, uh, about the sites they've been to, I would say don't not go out to a site because you don't think that you have the right equipment. If this is something that you want to try to experience on the level that you can can experience or in your own way or uh, approach from the point of view of your own uh, experience, then this is something that you should do. Well, if you want to be a ghost hunter or not, we'll get into that in a moment. Fake Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? We are currently enjoying America's Haunted Road Trip with John Kachuba. Laura Laddick and Michael Verhola. Now, John, how many books have been written so far? Uh, well, there are four in the series right now, Ghost Hunting Ohio, Ghost Hunting Illinois, Ghost Hunting New Jersey, and Ghost Hunting um, Virginia, and actually D.C. We have uh, four slated for next year. When, and again, talking about some ghost hunters, uh, we have Patty Starr, who's going to be writing Ghost Hunting Kentucky, uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, who is doing Ghost Hunting Pennsylvania, we have April Slaughter, who will be doing Ghost Hunting Texas, and then Mike is doing uh, Ghost Hunting Maryland for us. So we'll have four books again next year as well. And I wanted to just mention something about so this uh, discussion we're having about uh, 
using tools versus not using tools, equipment versus not using equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, the purpose of the books themselves, America's Haunted Road Trip, I, I think Mike is hitting on something here, which is that we're simply saying all our writers, no matter what degree of, let's say, technical usage they have or whether they're not going in with equipment, all our writers are basically saying these are places of interest. These are places that are reported to have paranormal activity. Here's what we saw when we went there. You know, Here's what we experienced when we went there. No matter how we experience that, whether we got EMF readings or we got some great orb shots or we picked up uh, EVP or whether somebody simply said, man, did you feel that? You know, somebody touched me on the shoulder. You know, whatever it might be, uh, we're simply saying these are locations that we think have a high degree of interest. So you, reader, you go to these places, you check it out and do it any way you want. You know, whether you want to go in with trucks of, of gear and, and all kinds of electronic equipment and set up into a full-blown investigation, or whether you are the kind of person that just sort of goes in with, you know, a pair of dowsing rods or something in a camera and that's enough, or, or nothing at all. Maybe you have some sensitivities on your own. So I guess that's the only point I want to make here. I do think that uh, equipment certainly has its place. Uh, I've been on investigations where it's taken us hours to set up all the gear that we had. Uh, you know, having a, a whole location wired from top to bottom with every kind of imaginable electronic equipment, you know, known to man. I've also gone to other places where I've gone in with maybe a medium and nothing else, and that person will walk around and say, hey, you know, I'm getting sensations here or whatever. So I think there's room for both. You mentioned the brain as the best tool, and I think that's certainly true. I think we have to come to a marriage of sort of intellect, if you will, and technology. They, they both have their place, and I think, you know, a balance of both is what's probably going to start giving us some of the answers that we're looking for. I gather this gather book is going to help encourage people, and perhaps that's part of the intention, to go out and do their own ghost hunting or their own road tours. So maybe we could cover, and we'll get into some more of the nitty-gritty in a moment, but maybe we could cover a little bit here about how one goes and does this sort of thing. So I want to go look for ghosts in my neighborhood or in another state or something. What should I do? How do I prepare myself? What should I be on the lookout for? What sort of dangers might I confront? <laughs> I think you probably well, all you go to Barnes and Noble and you get one of our books. <laughs> so you have places to go to. Yeah, then, then, then you square for at least four states. There you yeah, go. you know, and at least that way you don't have to worry about the whole, like, oh, there's a no trespassing sign and who do I contact to get permission to get in here and blah, blah, blah. Because if you just have the book, that's half the battle. You already know where you're going and it's open to the public. And then you already have a background, a historical background, and the key haunted activity that's been cited for that location. So you can just choose to go and bring an audio recorder and keep it in your pocket because some places do not allow photography inside because of the the different relics and things that they have and and other places may allow you to take as many pictures as you want and then you have your camera with you and you know but if you wanted to go to a cemetery or something that's not in the book that maybe has a no trespassing sign then you have to get in touch with either the caretaker or the monsignor and get permission to have a team go in there and you know but that's a whole different ball of wax but well we don't want people disobeying the law here you know exactly that's that's only done in movies In horror films, you know, you always disobey the law in a horror film, and then the creature strikes out against you because you pissed off the creature. Can't do that. Yeah, and suddenly you can't run faster than two steps per <laughs> minute, you know, and you trip and the zombie eats you because... <laughs> you always go down to the basement, despite the fact that you know you shouldn't open that door. 
Exactly. <laughs> or don't go to the attic either. Attics are pretty dangerous. Too. That it's is not bad too, yeah. Or oh, yeah. the most, the farthest room in the structure from the front door that is usually <laughs> locked. <laughs> the one that hasn't been opened or examined in 43 years. Seriously, that, M Michael, I want to ask you a question about something because you brought up something about the, the catacombs in Paris. Right. You said a word that hit me, and this is something that keeps coming up over and over in what are supposedly haunted environments. Limestone. Mm -hmm. What's the deal with limestone and paranormal activity? You no, know, uh, that, that, you got me completely off guard with that question. I have no idea. I never even considered a connection, but you're, you're right. Uh, limestone is what gets used, uh, like for an awful lot of sepulchers and things, and then, you know, sometimes gets faced over with marble or whatever. I, I just don't know. That's a, that's an excellent question. Do you have a theory on this? I don't know. I, I know we've spoken to a couple of other, uh, people working on uh, on haunting investigations. That's a good question. And, and limestone quartz. You know. they, they tracked a lot of quartz in the grounds of Gettysburg, and they are beginning to arrive at a theory or a correlation between the, the crystal quartz that's in the ground, because a lot of times we used quartz and radios and transmissions and what have mm -hmm. you, and, mm -hmm. and they're saying there's some correlation between the crystal being in the ground and how it's kind of holding and amplifying some of the trauma and the ghostly of the paranormal activity is heightened and, and kind of almost yeah. like replayed like a video or an audio loop. Of course, that also raises the question, does that make you more sensitive to something that's happening or does it make you vulnerable to illusions? The quartz wouldn't make you more sensitive. What I have found that heightens someone's and can actually mess with someone's brain activity is EMF. You know, if you if you took somebody and you stood them next to like a, a something that was putting out, let's say, sixty thousand cycles or sixty cycles or whatever it is, however the measurement goes, sixty hertz per minute, yeah, or sixty hertz. Or, but there was another term that Dave was using. But in any event, when they're exposed to high rates of EMFs, and some people are all, already off the bat a little more sensitive to EMF, like I myself, if you take me down to Secaucus, New Jersey. Every time I get out of the car, I get one of those woo head rushes and everything. And and I it always happened. We would go to ChillerCon every year, and I would always say to my my then husband, I'm like, what is it with this place? I'm always so dizzy and woozy. And he's like, he turns me around. He goes, do you see all those antennas? They're for all the major New York stations in New York City, and they're outputting a ton of EMF. Obviously, you're sensitive to it. And then as soon as I got further away from the antennas and Secaucus, I would be fine. So I have found in my own experience, plus seeing different cases we've been on, people can have a sensitivity and a heightened or even hallucinate as a result of EMF activity, but mm -hmm. not so much the quartz stuff. Now, mm -hmm. There's been some studies with uh, epileptics, too, as well, um, in terms of EMF, and showing that you know, there's some correlation between high EMF and uh, frequency of you know convulsions or epileptic fits and things like that. So right. there, there's something you know with playing with um, with our neurochemistry uh, for some people, obviously who are right. sensitive to it. And so if that's the case, uh, you know who knows what else it might do in terms of well, you know it could be hallucinations or whatever, or maybe just actually making you more sensitive to something that's actually there. From a more pragmatic uh, point of view, for you know, for an explanation, possible explanation for limestone in Europe anyway, you're going to get 
early settlement patterns around places where limestone is plentiful because it could be quarried and used to build things. So uh, a city like Rome, a city like Paris, any of these great European cities, they had limestone deposits there, and people settled there in part because there were caves where they could store things initially and then uh, limestone that they could mine from them to build things. So that's why you're getting a lot of these big European cities, uh, and they're old, and a lot of people have died there, and you're going to get hauntings there as a result. So the, the presence of the limestone and the age of the place is going to have some correlation in some cases, too. Well, it's kind of interesting, because if you look at what limestone is, basically it's dead stuff. It's dead marine organisms. Yeah. I mean, so it's, or, it's, it's, it's extremely organic matter. There was even a thing about limestones, I and mean, this is going to sound really out there, but if I remember correctly in reading a book about crop circles, it seems like under the areas that have the most active crop circle uh, yeah. stuff going on, there's huge amounts of limestone. It's really yeah, weird. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Crazy stuff. Okay, so let's, let's go back to ghosts for a minute. So um, you guys have looked into this stuff in lots of different places, and let's differentiate between what appear to be sort of, you know, what we call the tape loops, the stuff that doesn't seem to have any kind of intelligence associated with it. And, and I think what ends up happening, you talk about, like, uh, I think, Laura, you brought up Gettysburg, and I've read that Gettysburg is supposedly one of the most haunted places in the United States and probably has something to do with the huge amount of trauma and death that went on there. But that seems to be a very different kind of manifestation versus uh, ghost entities that seem to have some sort of intelligence and, and interaction. So could you talk about that difference a little bit, please? So what we call it, I'm, gosh, when I first started doing it, we called it a place memory, and now the official term is residual haunting. And a residual haunting is just like an audio or videotape that's set on a loop, and it just replays itself. It has no consciousness, no intelligence to it. It may um, activate on the anniversary of the traumatic event that inspired it or whatever it's recanting. It, it can also happen from just even a positive thing, you know, where someone really liked doing something so much and they kept doing it that even after they're long dead and gone, you may see the image of this person going back and forth between the stove and the refrigerator, and it's not that it's that person's ghost. It's just that's something they did so habitually, it kind of recorded itself, and it would just replay itself. Whereas when you have a ghost, there is a little bit more. I mean, ghosts can be completely unaware that they're ghosts, but they have somewhat of an intelligence to where they are moving, it's sporadic, they may cause energy interference with your own electronics, making your TV jump 50 channels when they kind of cruise by. They may, like, be able to have enough telekinetic energy to where they take your keys and kind of mess with you, like, ha-ha, and I moved your keys, and then you're going hysterical because you can't find them, and then they put them back where you originally had them. And So when I start to hear, like, different things like that, that will lead me more in the direction of looking for a haunting and a ghost. Whereas if I hear, like, well, every night at 9 o'clock we hear the front door open, slam, and we hear footsteps go upstairs and it's done, that to me would say, no, it's more residual haunting. So when you have that story, like the, the footsteps coming up to your door and stopping, do you think that, that that is an entity that's trying to get your your attention specifically? I think in that case, you know, Judging from how I felt and how my cat reacted primarily, you know, she sensed an energy there. It wasn't, this wasn't something that happened every night. I mean, what happened every night, uh, in all honesty, was around 11 o'clock at night, 
my father would shut the TV off. He would start coming up the stairs. And there was a landing above the stairs where basically that was where the bathroom kind of went over to where the beginning part of the stairs were coming up. And like I said, he was 6'1", and this was a 140-year-old house, so everything was a little shorter. And every night I would hear him go one, two, three, you know, coming up the stairs, and all of a sudden, boom, oh, and he'd hit his head. And that was my first clue. When I first heard the footsteps start, I was listening for my father to bump his head. And I thought, well, that was my first thing I thought. Wow, it's weird. He, for once, he didn't hit his head. And then I kept hearing the steps come closer, and I'm thinking, that's so weird. I, just, I was already getting that unsettling feeling, like, I don't think that's bad. And then I looked at the clock, and I saw the time, and it was 1 a.m. versus 11 p.m. when he'd be coming up. And then when the cat reacted with, with the steps stopping outside my door, you know. So that was something. If it had happened every night at 1 a.m. where I heard mm -hmm. the steps come up and stop, I would have, you know. Well, now, knowing what I know. I still would have scared the crap out of me like a kid when I was 14, you know. <laughs> you never assumed that your dad was exercising and becoming more fleet of foot. No, no. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. I don't even think You're I... You're a silly man. It. I'm such a silly person. I learned from you, David. You're the master at silliness. Oh, I, but I can't, and I improvise. Michael, yeah. uh, tell us one of the interesting uh, stories in your book, Chapter 11, The Trapezium House. Tell us about that, please. Tell our listeners about that, if you would. And your experience there? Yeah, the Trapezium House is a house that was built in the late 18th century uh, in Petersburg, Virginia. Uh, so it's sort of a slightly post-colonial uh, era. My wife and I uh, visited it uh, the week after Christmas uh, of last year. Uh, and it's probably about one of the least publicly accessible places in the book. Uh, it's currently in private ownership. Uh, it was purchased from the city of Petersburg by a retired circuit court judge. But he did so under the provision that he make it publicly accessible a certain number of days per year. So when there are certain festivals and whatnot going on in Petersburg, the house is open to the public. So he doesn't live there. He uses it as an office uh, and as an art studio. <clears throat> And he does not believe uh, in ghosts. And just as there are people who are, you know, more sensitive than others, there are presumably people who are less sensitive than others. And this guy, you know, really is sober as a judge. Uh, he's just uh, not open to the idea that places are haunted. Uh, and that came out when I was interviewing him. And I was using an audio recorder when I interviewed him. And I did use a digital camera to take a number of photos while I was in the house. And because it was the first place I was doing for the book, I didn't have the expectation that anything uh, exceptional was going to happen. Uh, my wife and I visited the house. We interviewed the judge mid-morning on what was an unseasonably bright, sunny, cloudless day. It was exactly uh, the kind of conditions you would not associate with, with haunting or ghostly activity. But a couple of irregular things happened in association with our uh, visit. One was when I was interviewing the judge. And I asked him, sir, is this place haunted? I'd already talked to him on the phone before I went down there. But, you know, you got to ask on the record, face-to-face, -face, is this place haunted? And in the 30 minutes I interviewed him, I got a clean tape, no background noise, no crap, uh, just a clean taped interview that uh, was very easy to transcribe. No anomalies except one. And that anomaly turned up when I said, judge, is this place haunted? 
He said no, and there was a profound electronic chirp on the tape as if in response to him saying no, the place was not haunted. So I'm not claiming that that proves anything at all. Uh, there is certainly uh, room in this world for coincidence, but, but I found it to be very compelling, and frankly, I did not consider it to uh, be any sort of a coincidence at all. Uh, what it sounded like, what it felt like, was a something, possibly something intelligent, uh, responding, probably something intelligent, responding to what he said, responding indignantly to what he said. Is there something else here? No. And it said, yes, yes, I'm here. That was the one thing that happened during our time there. And another was that I, I took a series of photos. One of them was a photo uh, that I took from the third floor of the house, plunging down the stairwell uh, to the ground floor. And uh, it was a couple days after we visited the house before my wife and I could download our photos to the computer. We were on the road. We, we made it to Atlanta before we could download the photos and actually look at them. And I was going through the photos, and in one of them, I think it's actually in the book. We're going to be running those those pictures bigger in the next uh, round of books, by the way, so they, they stand out a little bit more. But uh, there was a gray, uh, wispy, human-sized mass on the stairway, and the judge and my wife had both been with me on the third floor when I took that, that picture. Uh, there hadn't been anyone on the stairway. My wife, when she looked at the picture, she was a little stunned. She said, I mean, it, it doesn't look like a person. It looks like a gray, semi soft she said, is that one of us? I said, well, yeah, which one of us do you remember being gray until I saw it? So that was uh, something that was definitely anomalous and not an orb. Uh, I've turned up orbs at a number of sites. Uh, this is frankly the only site that I did for this book where I turned up imagery that was anomalous but not uh, orb-oriented. Before we go on, let's pick this up on hour two. We are covering America's Haunted Road Trip. Four volumes written in the series so far, four more coming in the coming year. John Kachuba, Laura Laddick, and Michael Varhola, and other authors are joining, and we'll be joining our three guests on the other side of the Paracast. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. We are continuing America's Haunted Road Trip with three of the authors, John Kachuba, Laura Laddick and Michael Varhola. Let's continue with where we were, where we, we stopped in the middle of a haunted house. And yeah, I mean, we interrupted for a break, and now let's continue. There was one other anomaly that had turned up at the house. I had mentioned the gray mass on the stairway and um, the weird blip on the tape when I asked the judge if the place was haunted. And at one point, you know, I had a chill up the back of my neck. Am I going to say that doesn't mean anything? No, I think that's significant. I think when you go to a place that's reputed to be haunted and you feel like something cold passes across the back of your neck, that's, that's relevant. It's not evidence that you can use to prove anything to anyone, and I'm not pretending that it is. Uh, it's just part of my experience. It's just part of my documented experience when I was there. But the, the, the other, you know, anomaly that I can show to people occurred actually the night before. Uh, we interviewed the judge. We checked into a crappy motel just off the interstate, probably about a, a mile or so from where the trapezium house is, and I had driven over to the trapezium house to just so I could scout it out and know where it was so we could get there quickly in the morning. And I took a few supported pictures of it. I took five pictures of it with my digital camera. So they were all supported shots. Uh, they were all low-light shots, of course. And one of them 
actually looks like the house is being twisted. It looks like a giant hand, for for want of a better word, has grabbed the house and has twisted it and distorted it counterclockwise. I found it to be, considering it was the first picture of the first sensibly haunted place uh, that I took for this book, I, I took that to be uh, providence. <laughs> I took that to be a sign of, of what was to come for the book in general. What did the judge think, by the way, after saying, no, it's not haunted? He never ended up hearing the tape. Uh, you know, I, I didn't re- end up reviewing the tape until, you know, uh, several days later, uh, once I was gone. Uh, and I haven't been in any kind of contact with him. Uh, so it wasn't a question uh, of here come the judge, there go the judge, there run the judge. No, 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 no. It was not uh, an audible sound. It was only audible on the tape. So, you know, here we go back to the value of the technology. This was something outside the range of normal human hearing. Uh, this is something that uh, that would not have been picked up uh, had it not been for the recorder. There's just one thing I want to, two things I want to comment on. There's a very interesting note in here, Michael, that the judge, even though he says he didn't believe in any of this haunted stuff, he talks about his dog, his Jack Russell Terrier, who uh, wouldn't go up to the second floor. The dog, right here, the poor dog would just cower by the front door. Very interesting. Really interesting. It's one one thing for a judge to admit that his dog is superstitious. It's another thing for him to admit that he's superstitious. Yeah, I always wonder here in a situation like this, does it make sense to bring an animal with you? Because animals can often sense things that we can't. I wouldn't bring an animal with me. Okay. I wouldn't bring an animal with me. I think uh, for for a number of reasons. One, I've got cats, and and the damn things are hard to take with you under any circumstances. Uh, but it's it's one. Never mind the catitude. <laughs> never mind the catitude. Oh, boy, just a minute here. All right. Okay. Go ahead. But 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 uh, it's one thing for a person to decide. Okay, I'm going to put myself in a situation where I might be exposed to things that are paranormal and and frankly potentially hazardous i think that this pursuit does have potential hazards uh i think that uh you know 999 times out of a thousand you're not going to actually suffer any of those hazards but i think there are possible psychological or spiritual hazards associated with dealing with the spirits of of departed people so it's one thing for you to decide as a person i'm going to go ahead and i'm going to uh undertake this risk and i'm going to make this uh my pursuit of choice it's another thing to drag an animal along with the thought that they're going to be susceptible to it and using them as sort of a, um, uh, a gauge. Uh, it's simple, simply something I wouldn't do. Well, you, yeah, I wouldn't just for the consideration because the homeowner may not want animals in their house. Right. Second of all, somebody on the team may be allergic, so it's <laughs> it'd be neat to do, you know, if, if, you, if you could, but I would, I would probably err on not yeah, doing but- it. If you can get your dog to carry your cameras for you, I mean, there's an advantage to that. That's I would put the headlight on. I had a great thing. Anything so heavy. would have been the right height to wear the headlight, you know. There you go. All right, one other, one other quick technical quote, Michael, and, uh, and, and actually for the, for, the, for the other two as well. You know, it, uh, this photo is very interesting of the, uh, mm. the anomaly on the stairs. One thing I'd like to suggest to you, because you are using digital cameras, which means you don't have to pay for film processing. I want to suggest as a standardized procedure, whenever you take a shot, take two. Oh, and, I and the reason, well, I generally do. Okay. Yeah. 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 I thought, yeah. You, know, yeah. you think you've gotten an orb because you do have that instant feedback on the screen. 
don't move, keep taking four or five more shots so we can compare and figure out was yeah. it dust or was yeah, it Yeah, I would have taken or... three or four plunging shots uh, down that stairway uh, all at the same time. And frankly, that doesn't even have anything to do with due diligence for ghost hunting. Uh, you know, I'm a little neurotic. I take it and then I need to shift it a quarter inch. Uh, so uh, I take many, many pictures. Trapezium, at any given site, I would generally take as many as 100 shots. I'm looking at the Trapezium House photos right now. Yeah, I took 60 images when I was there. Uh, I came uh, from the exact same vantage point, because if you had, like, um, see, now when I shoot photos with digital uh, cameras, I always think about panoramic stitching. So almost kind of by habit now, I will just, like, automatically start to pivot and take a series of shots. So, like, in this particular shot, A, it would have been great, and you might have this. You might have, like, three consecutive shots shot within seconds I've got two. I took yeah. one and then another right afterwards, and the anomaly didn't turn up in the second one. So I took two, and I'm looking at the time stamp on them right now. They're both the same time, so we know they were both within the same minute. And a point of fact, they would have both been within seconds of each other. And the first one shows the anomaly. The second one doesn't. You're right. It, it becomes more relevant if I would have taken three or four or six. In this case, I ended up taking two from that perspective. And uh, just inside, I'd love to see that shot of the Twisted House. I'd love to see that. If there's somebody uh, to email, that'd be great. Yeah, I'll email it to you right now. Okay, no problem. That'd be great. All right, sounds good. Now, speaking of the danger, okay, because one of the reasons given maybe we don't want to stick our animals, our precious pets, into a situation where there's something dangerous happening. Any of you, and you can speak out first, whoever wants to, encounter a situation where you start wondering whether you'd get out of there alive or at least uninjured? I don't know about quite that dramatic, but I was on an investigation in an abandoned farmhouse. We had a meeting with us, and in fact, Laura had mentioned earlier using a Ouija board and you know how she's not real happy with that, and, and I'm not either. I, I don't think there are things you want to play around with. On this occasion, though, it was a medium that uh, myself and the other investigator actually trusted, and we were kind of surprised that she did bring a Ouija board with her. Uh, but in any case, she did, and we let her proceed with it. This is an abandoned farmhouse that uh, people had been seeing an apparition of a woman there, also of a man in a Civil War uniform, and of um, some children. So there's a couple of different uh, you know, apparitions that had been spotted. Well, we started working the Ouija board, and uh, we apparently contacted a spirit that identified herself as Esther. You know, she spelled out the name Esther on the board, and she proceeded to say that um, she lived in the farmhouse. She died in 1895, uh, that she had two children. Now, on a previous visit, the medium had apparently discovered these two children and, as she said, made contact with them and got them to uh, to move on, to cross over, to go to the light, any one of the numerous terms you want to use, but basically to get them to go to wherever it is they belonged. So it was interesting that this, uh, this spirit, you know, sort of verified that information later on. But the last question we asked her was, you know, do you need help? Do you, would you like us to help you? Would you like us to, uh, you know, reunite you, you with the children or your husband or your loved ones who have gone before and all that? And the planchette, you know, the little gizmo that you use and your hold on, the thing just zipped over to no, which is tore over there and stopped dead. And uh, that was it. And there was no more contact. She wouldn't answer any other questions. At the same time, we had some video cameras that started going really crazy. Uh, focusing was going all kinds of weird things on us. So at that point, I, I basically kind of interrupted the, the, you know, the sort of work with the Ouija board and said, look, you know, you just contacted something here that 
you know, it's answering your questions and everything else, but now you ask it a basic question, which is, you know, would you like us to help you and move you on to where you, where you belong? And it refuses. It wants to stay there. And despite the fact that it knows its children is gone and everything else, I felt very uncomfortable at that point. And I said, you know, that's, that's not a positive sign, you know. And so um, we shut down the investigation at that point and we left the house. Um, now, I'm not saying that, you know, we're in fear of our life and certainly nobody was physically hurt or anything, but, but you have to wonder about a situation like that. There's really no reason why that, that spirit should not have moved on. And so I became a little concerned with the fact that it wasn't. Now, what do you say to, to people, you know, this, this whole thing about Ouija boards is, I think, you know, every time I hear discussion about it, it always seems to be in a negative context. What do you say to people who say, you know, this whole Ouija board thing, you've got a person holding a planchet, and what's to stop someone who's holding that planchet from moving it specifically, from controlling it themselves versus being some sort of external control? Mm -hmm. Well, you don't really know. I mean, I, I can remember as a child... I had a Ouija board, you know, as a little kid. I mean, we used to play with it. It was a game. You'd ask the questions, what's my name? And it would spell out John. Well, no surprise. You know, I'm at the other end of it, you know. And, and so you have to kind of rule that out. Uh, I, I made the point that this person was a medium um, because I think, I think in the right hands of people who have that kind of a sensitivity that it could be a good tool. But I also think that if it's just used by, you know, you and I or whatever, and we don't have those kinds of abilities, that, you know, certainly we could be manipulating it without our conscious volition. But right, exactly. sort of wish fulfillment in a way, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and, and actually, a lot of that has, you have to put that factor into paranormal studies, basically, that there's always right. kind of a wish fulfillment and that we could manufacture a lot within our own minds. And we can do a lot with our own minds. So you have to kind of rule it out. And like I said, in this case, it was a medium that was controlling it and somebody that we trusted. So I was a little more, uh, I, was, I was far more, I should say, trusting of the results in her hands than perhaps if I had been doing it maybe with somebody else. I'm just going to say there's also the, the aspect with the Ouija board that, well, I've read about it where they, they theorize your higher self or your higher consciousness can be actually pulling in this information and it's having a physical reaction wherein it's making a nerve impulse trigger in your finger to make the planchette move on the board. So you're not consciously aware that you're doing it, but on a higher conscious level, you can actually be physically making the planchette move from those neuro impulses from the higher consciousness. Okay, so you're not causing some third force to do it. This is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer to the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net, and we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications, and you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos, and it's all for free. Or drop us a line, Mr. UFO at webtv.net. 
You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. are talking with three of the authors of the books in the series, America's Haunted Road Trip. And they are John Kachuba, Michael Varhola, and Laura Laddick. Now, John, a fast question here. Is it ultimately the goal to cover all 50 states with this? Well, it would be nice. I mean, I don't know if we're going to do that. That's going to be a long project. At the rate of, you know, four books a year, we'd be doing it forever. Um, but we certainly want to get the more populated states, the, the ones where we have heavy population centers. Um, so we're looking at East Coast, West Coast, and as I said, we're doing Texas, and we've already got Illinois and Ohio and some of the other Midwest states. So um, we're trying to do those as, as much as possible. If, you know, if, if, uh, if things work out and we can do more than four a year, uh, you know, perhaps we can get all 50 done, but that'd be quite a, quite a challenge, I think, at this point. We're not going to look for, for example, ghosts among the Eskimos in Alaska. Jen and I was going to interview Sarah Palin and see if she knew what ghosts were there. <laughs> yeah, Please don't say. mention the P word. <laughs> I'm not going to say a word. I'll be very quiet. All right, so, um, John, I've, looked, I've actually read uh, The Ghost Hunting New Jersey and Ghost Hunting Virginia. Now, I, I didn't get your two books, uh, Ohio and, or was it Ohio and? Ghost Hunting Ohio and Ghost Hunting Illinois, correct. So uh, in those two books, what's the most compelling case? And give us a compelling case where maybe there's some photographic evidence. Uh, photographic evidence. Um, well, I would think probably there's a place in Toledo um, known as Collingwood Art Center, and it began life as a high school, Catholic high school for girls, uh, staffed by Ursuline nuns. Uh, that could be creepy in its own in its own sense, but um, we, we don't we don't go there having having a Catholic education myself. Um, but in any case, uh, the artists there it's now an art center. Artists actually live in this um, beautiful, beautiful old stone building. It's huge. They live there. They have their apartments there, and they also have the studios there. And we're talking about artists of all kinds: musicians, painters, sculptors, uh, actors. Uh, and so there's a lot of energy there, a lot of creative energy, and I think that that's sort of an important point to where I'm going with the story because of, um, if we're talking about ghosts being a source of energy, I think creative energy also uh, is is helpful in maybe contacting them. But in any case, uh, what they've been talking about primarily was something they were calling Shadow Man that they were seeing in the basement. And they described Shadow Man as being just a black life-size um, silhouette, no detail, but just black, literally a moving life-size silhouette. And they frequently saw it in the basement. Um, and, in fact, I had gone down to the basement before. I knew exactly what the story was down there uh, and walked through a location in the dark in which the air felt it suddenly turned very uh, dense, very heavy, and I got this overwhelming sense of depression, like instantly. And then I just kept walking within two feet or so. I was through it. Everything was gone. It had lifted and everything else like that. Uh, and it's, again, you know, I talked before about the idea of scientific tools, equipment, and then also using your senses. And here's a case of simply senses, nothing to prove it. However, I did take, take some photos, uh, not down the basement, but up in the theater 
where they had a second sighting up there of not only Shadow Man, but of uh, nuns. They frequently would see nuns sitting in the balcony of this uh, theater. Now, as I said, the nuns are no longer there. They haven't been in that building in 25 or 30 years. Mm-hmm. And I took photos. And like you said, actually, I took a couple, just, you know, click, 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 you know, right to the same spot, same location, and um, got these uh, got these beautiful orbs right over a couple of seats up in the balcony. And when I showed them to some people who, uh, you know, had been there many years and, and knew the theater and everything else, uh, they said, well, where was this? And I pointed out to them, and they said, well, that's that's the location where actors frequently will look up and see the nuns sitting there. So... I thought that was pretty interesting that it was actually that, you know, specific location, literally over the seats, <laughs> you know, where they would see these nuns. So, mm-hmm. but, yeah, a lot of interesting things there, not only just the orbs, but like I say, having these physical sensations as well as, you know, actually apparitions, people actually seeing Shadow Man. So. What about audible information of one sort or another? Any of these ghosts talk to you? Other than make uh, silly noises, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course, ghost, silly noises, ghost noises, right? Uh, I had an occasion in uh, a bed and breakfast in Florida, which is uh, not in any way. I have another book called Ghost Hunters, which um, is my actual, my newest one, but it's from a different publisher, and it's nationwide in scope rather than state. Uh, but one of the places in there was Florida, and I was in a, uh old B&B that actually began life as a Spanish house built in 1791. Uh, and they have a ghost there that they call Miss Lily, and they say she's a slave that dates from the time of the Civil War. And I was in a room called Miss Lily's room. Um, and this actually had been her room, although when she was there, it's an old attic room. It's quite nice now. In her time in the 1860s, it was just basically a garret. But anyway, that's, that was her room. And I spent two nights there with no problem. Uh, the morning that I'm leaving, uh, I got my suitcase on the bed, and I'm packing up and everything else, and all of a sudden, right in my ear, I hear this, it's a male voice, actually, and it's like this frantic whispering. I can't make out the words, but clearly, it's a human voice whispering in my ear. Now, I don't have auditory hallucinations. I mean, I've never I've never heard, you know, whispering before. I don't hear voices. And I, I mean, I jumped, and, and I, I looked around, of course, and obviously, there was nobody there. Later on, I found out, it came to pass, I was talking to one of the desk clerks who had been there for about 20 years, and she had seen Miss Lily on a couple of occasions, but she told me also that there was a second ghost there of a Spanish soldier, colonial-style soldier from the 18th century, which she had also seen. And I said, well, I didn't see any ghosts or anything, but, you know, are there other ways that they materialize? And she said, well, the biggest thing is people will hear them whispering, especially the guy. And I said, where? And they said, well, usually in Miss Lily's room. I said, well, that's where I was. (laughs) So, I mean, I don't know what it was. But, you know, I ruled out everything. There was no TV on, no radio. There was no fan turning. There was, I mean, there was no noise. It was a Sunday morning. It was unbelievably quiet. You know, it was in St. Augustine, season, nothing there. So, I don't know. I don't know if that was a ghost, but it sounded like one to me. Fit right in. John, did you mention you had somebody working on a book about Vermont? I started working on what? I'm sorry, give me a... Did you uh, say you had somebody working on a book about Vermont? Uh, no, not at this point. All right. Are any of the three of you aware of the Eddie brothers of Chittenden, Vermont? I'm not. No. All right. I want to absolutely blow your minds. What you want to do, I think the three of you will find this really fascinating. You should go into Google Books and do a search for a book called People from the Other World. Okay, the, the book in its entirety is on Google Books. 
It's written by a very interesting guy by the name of Henry Steele Olcott. And, and it's about, it, it, it is probably the most well-investigated medium-slash-ghost-slash-apparition case of the uh, 19th century. The three of you want to look this up. You want to read this because it is, it is really stunning. A lot of people seem to not know about it. We've talked about it a little bit on the show. There's actually been a thread on our forums about this that I created, but it's, it's really a fascinating case, one of the best investigated paranormal cases of the 19th century. This is this book, a rather substantial book, written by this guy who has a really fascinating background about these two brothers, these two mediums up in Vermont who uh, just the stuff that was going on there on a nightly basis was absolutely astounding. Uh, there is no equivalent, to my knowledge, of any contemporary case that encompasses the kind of activity that was going on there. And, and as I said, the book is available for free in, in its entirety. The book is from the 1800s. It's available in its entirety on Google Books. The three of you will find this absolutely fascinating. And to anybody who's not um, listening to the show since the beginning, if you're just listening recently, this is also something all of you should do as well. Because, you know, again, when you guys go and you visit a place, you're visiting it like one time, maybe a couple of times. And in terms of gathering data, it's, it's very useful to have somebody who, let's say, is going to stay in a place where there's activity for weeks at a time, documenting what's going on. So, again, I think the three of you will find this very interesting. And, and I think, John, what will happen is if you read this, you'll think, you know what? We've got to send somebody up there to see if the Eddie farm is still around. <laughs> really fascinating case. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to throw that book? out there. The name of the book is uh, People from, let me just scroll down, People from the Other World. People from the Yeah, it's from 1875, and the uh, author is Henry Steele Olcott, who, again, his personal story, gee, you could probably make a movie out of it, just an absolutely fascinating character, who was sent up to this farm to investigate this situation, took an artist up with him, and uh, what they personally witnessed, what they documented, and they even went through the farm and diagrammed the whole thing, because they were trying to figure out, you know, the you'd have these manifestations of 10, 15 spirit beings coming out of a box and then dematerializing right in front of people. Just incredible stuff. And Olcott was basically unimpeachable. Guys, rock solid. He was actually sent up there to debunk the whole thing, and he was so impressed and uh, that he basically ended up being one of the co-founders of the Theosophical Society. With a uh, with another very with a very controversial character Helena Blavatsky, that's a whole. It's it's oh, yeah, really Madame Blavatsky. Yeah, Blavatsky. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, yes. <laughs> so well, she ended up. Well, it's kind of again. It's a fascinating story. Henry Steele Olcott. Uh, you know, Blavatsky has some issues. Olcott rock solid, and and the book fascinating. I think the fact that the three of you are involved in in ghost hunting and researching this stuff. You will find this book absolutely fascinating.
Hi, this is Roger with eFoodsDirect.com, and I just wanted to welcome everyone from the Paracast Show. Hi to Gene and David and everybody out there. Listen, we're here to sponsor this radio show because we really like what Gene and what Dave are doing, and we'd like you to help us support them. Now, we are a long-term storable food company. However, the foods that we produce are low-moisture foods. They're very, very high quality, and you can live on them every day. You can literally cut your grocery bill in half or more than half, maybe as much as 60%, by buying bulk foods from eFoodsDirect.com. But right now, a recession slash depression is on the way. We're advising people to sell the toys in the garage, hawk off the old jewelry you don't use, pour the money into food supplies before it's too late. I'm telling you, it could be too late. We also can provide water filtration, other needs. Call eFoodsDirect.com and let us continue to support Gene and David here. 800-715-4380, 800-715-4380, or go to eFoodsDirect.com. That's eFoodsDirect.com, 1-800-715-4380. Airy Radio. Opening the door to the unknown. Download episodes of Erie Radio directly from iTunes or visit their website at www.erieradio.com. We're talking to three of the authors of the series entitled America's Haunted Road Trip. We're traveling along the highways and byways of America in search of strange things. Creatures of the Strange and Unknown with John Kachuba and Laura Laddick and Michael Verhola. And I have kind of the question that occurred to me early on, and I guess we should have followed it more. The mention that in addition to the obvious hauntings that we're talking about here, other paranormal events were seen around some of these places. Who wants to jump in on that? Maybe give us a little bit more of the background of that. Oh, okay. you mean other forms of the activity, not just like... other activities of some sort? Yes. Okay. Um, well, I had an interesting experience when I was doing the book down in the Burlington County Prison Museum. I was coming back from the warden's house, and it's connected by this little enclosed bridge walkway back to the prison. And just as I finished crossing that walkway and I got to the landing that gives you the choice to go up to the third floor or back down to the second floor, I smelled cigarette smoke. And I, I remembered from when the show, the TV show, Ghost Hunters, was there, they were tracking a cigarette smell. And I smelled the cigarette smoke and I turned my recorder on and I just recorded. I didn't even say anything. Or I even said, you know, well, if you're here, talk to me or something. But And didn't hear anything, but I kept smelling the cigarette smoke, and then it just was gone. As fast as it was there, it was gone. I went all over, up and down, trying to figure out if it was somebody smoking outside, and it wafted in. And when I spoke to the docent on duty, he said, you know, he smokes, but he said, you're not, it's a non-smoking facility. You have to be about 300 feet away from the building to have a cigarette. And I was like, well, then definitely. So I, when I played the recorder back driving home in the car, I could hear this voice like mumbling something in different voices, but it, part of it even sounded like it said, I committed no crimes, but you heard this as if he exhaled the cigarette smoke. And I just was freaked out by that. And I remember being at the spy house on that ghost tour, and that was one of the first things that happened while we the tour hadn't even well the tour was in progress in the previous tour so we were standing in this one front room of the place waiting for our time and we were my husband and I at the time we were looking at the different you know artifacts on the mantle above the fireplace and 
we both smelled as if someone was standing in between us smoking a pipe. And we looked at each other because we, we, we both knew my sensitivity. I was going to get sick from it. And before we could even say it, it was gone. So it's interesting when you have those other occurrences, the, the smells. And I always tell people a paranormal smell is very distinct, very pungent, but it's there and it's gone. Now, Laura, in reading your book, uh, there was one chapter, chapter 31, that just made me laugh about a place called Liquid Assets. Um, so you got to tell our listeners a story about Liquid Assets, please. Liquid Assets is a gentleman's club, you know, typically a go-go bar. And it, I, it, as far as we can tell, it's not any former patrons that are just hanging out for the continual orbs, if you will. But um, it seems to be the two spirits that are, I guess, following John Colasante, who's the owner of Liquid Assets. He, mm-hmm. he kind of nicknames himself the boy from the Bronx because he came from Bronx, New York. And he opened up this club. And what's interesting is my second husband, before I even met him, he managed, because there was another go-go bar in the same building. And... um Oh, gosh, now the name escapes me. But whatever it was, it might have been just called Pellegrino's, I'm not sure. But he managed that bar for nine and a half years. And he told me, he said, nothing paranormal ever happened there. And yet John comes along, and they have this very bizarre anomaly that's caught on the security cameras, the one camera facing the parking lot and the other camera that faces into the alleyway where he typically parks his car. And when Jane Doherty went and investigated liquid assets, she picked up the name, like, Cole and this other, I think it was Joseph or something, and it turned out that they were both the uncles or or great uncles to John when the whole family was still over in the Bronx. And they were, you know... Boys in the business, shall we say. (laughs) Apparently, they kind of took an attachment to John, so when he came over from the Bronx and opened up his liquid assets business, they, I guess, were hovering to kind of make sure business would be okay. And by kind of hovering and scoping out the parking lot, they were caught on the, the film of the security camera, which really did help the business because next thing you know, it was on every major network and every major newspaper and on the AP wire and... You know, it got to the point where John actually had to change the sign that says, yes, this bar is haunted on the outside of the building, you know, because he got asked it so much. And, and it, you know, and he always told me, he said, that was just such a boon to the business. And now it just seems to be a little more quiet, but it very fascinating because especially knowing that I knew someone that managed it for nine and a half years and said nothing yeah. bizarre ever happened, you know. What was the nature of the manifestation on the videotape? What exactly was on the tape? It's this, like, white little amorphous blob that was circulating, like the one shot is circulating in the parking lot, but it exhibits an intelligence wherein when the bread delivery truck pulls in, it goes and it ducks down through the ground, and it's it's not visible. And when the truck pulls out, it comes back up and starts flying around again. When one of the dancers would leave to go and get in her car, it would hide. And the real funny thing was when John's wife was working in the office and she looked over at the monitor for the security camera pointing into the alleyway where his car is parked, and she sees this light flying around. She calls him in. She says, look, that thing is in, is right by your car. And he's like, you sit here. You keep watching that. I'm going to go out and get this thing. So he goes out, and she's 
starts laughing because she's watching the door open to the alleyway and she watches the light go and duck behind the fence. And he's looking all around. He doesn't see it. He closes the door to come back in. By the time he gets to the office, she's laughing her head off. And she goes, as soon as you came back in, it came back out. And it started going all around your car. And he's standing there and he can see it. And it's like it's mocking him. He's like, you wait here. And he goes out again. And the thing took off and hid. And as soon as he came back in, it came out again like the na-na-na-na-na dance, you know. <laughs> now, you see, what you're describing almost sounds, and, and I want you to then sort of, you'll, you'll respond to what I'm about to say. It almost sounds like a reflection of light sourced externally that when other things come into the scene, they're breaking off the, the reflection because they're getting in between whatever the source of the light is in the camera lens. And then when they go away, you see the reflection again. So when you say the thing hides, does it move to different positions or does oh, it always absolutely. go to the same place? It does. Yeah. And in, in yeah. fact, I understand that that's a good point in perspective, but if you see the video clip with the bread delivery truck, let's say, where right. this, this light is hovering is well above the parking lot, and it's almost like it has an aerial view of the truck pulling in, and it decides mm. to go nosedive right through the pavement, and it takes and it hides that way. Then it comes back up, and it's circulating up around the light in the parking lot, so it's it's... And then when John, like, yes, if he had opened the door, but this thing actually, the wife actually got to see it bank and go as if it was hiding behind the fence. Uh, and okay. then she got to watch it come back out again, and, and it moves around, and it wasn't in a, like, yes, if it were traffic, like lights, let's say a car, it would be a repetitive pattern. You know, the cars are traveling the same route, so they would be reflecting constantly the same way. Even if you opened the door, you would have seen it the exact same way each time, but it wasn't. This thing Absolutely. has you know, it, it definitely moves at its own rate and its own direction. So now, you, you said something else, Laura. You said that um, this was all over the media. So, a uh, question for you. Do you think that was because of the fact that this was happening outside of a of a stripper club? Or was it because of the fact that there was... Were they showing this video? What, what really hit was the video. It was broadcast and the clips hit because, you know, the first thing he did which was good, any investigator would have said to do this, was run it through your, your security company and let them see is there a malfunction with the camera, was there something on the lens, and they bounced right back saying, no, there's no defect in our equipment, everything was working properly, we can't explain what this light source is, but there's definitely something there. And he then um, contacted the Jersey Society of Parapsychology, and that was Jane Doherty, who was the head of that, the president of the of that organization at the time and she lived right there and she lives actually right there in South Plainfield still and so she came over and she started picking up things psychically and that were making sense about you know Cole like Mad Dog Cole and Joseph Cole I mean that was just the gist of it was I think when you know the video itself got released and the media caught wind of it it just went like wildfire and I'm sure it didn't hurt the fact that it was a strip club, because I'm sure there was a lot of, like, you know, a lot of the guys at the office saying, hey, you know, I'll take this, you know, I'll, I'll take a van to stand <laughs> down, and, you know, it's a tough job, but, you know, I'll cover it for you. Someone's got to do it, yeah. yeah. It's a hard job, but someone has to do it. As we look at all these stories, and this is one of the things that we sometimes voice on the show in terms of just devil's advocate point of view, or just wanting more evidence of something, and that is there is a conventional wisdom 
in ghost hunting that these are spirits of the dead and that for some reason when they go to the other side, maybe they're not making the complete journey. So they hang out in the house, maybe the house in which they grew up or the house in which they died, whatever it might be. And of course, the silly question I'll ask is, how do we know this? How do we know that this is what it's all about? Anyone want to go on the answer? I don't think we know for sure. That's why we keep researching. Because sometimes it's, I've had it where it can be a manifestation of the living. Like if you have poltergeist activity, it can actually be the telekinetic results and manifestation of someone who's just highly stressed but keeps internalizing all the stress. And somehow they are able to do weird stuff. Yeah, when they okay. start to power down and relax a little bit, all that pent-up energy has to go somewhere, and it, it sometimes manifests as poltergeist activity. So in that sense, there are things that maybe our minds can do that we do not understand, and maybe okay. we can cause things to move around if we're under a certain degree of stress, we're possibly generating a certain type of energy. And maybe if we can tap that energy, that would be very fascinating. Mm-hmm. So in that case, then, we're not talking about spirits of the dead. And the reason I worry about this is because I think we had one guest, David, as you recall, who was talking of ghosts in the sense of being spawns of the devil, perhaps, uh-huh. bad things. It might have been Zappos, I think, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, John takes a very religious point of view, as did his uncle, you know, Ed Warren and, and Lorraine Warren. Um, and for a lot of people, it does become a matter of religion, spirits versus, you know, demons. But there's other possibilities, too, for for what we're witnessing. I mean, one thing could be that what we're looking at, what we're calling ghostly phenomena, could in fact be nothing but manifestations of, let's say, laws of physics that we don't yet understand. I mean, think of like microwaves and radio waves and what they do for us. A hundred years ago, even less than that, people didn't even know these kinds of energies existed. So if you said you were hearing music coming through the air, they think you're crazy. Well, we know that radio waves is literally sound carried through the air. So it's very possible that when we see a candlestick jump across a table or something or, or something move or we hear footsteps or whatever it might be, that there could be physical laws behind this that are actually natural laws of the universe that we just don't understand and have nothing to do with dead people. On the other hand, they could be dead people. <laughs> and then a third possibility, too, is if you look at, quantum physics, for instance, and a lot of the theories coming out of quantum physics, the ideas of alternate realities or parallel universes or or other levels of existence that, again, we don't understand. There's a book out now, we talked a lot about orbs. There's a book out called The Orb Project. I can't think of it. There's two authors, Ledwith and I can't, I think it's like Michael or Michaelis or something. But these guys have a very interesting take on orbs. And they, they do a lot of scientific research, a lot of scientific studies on these things, and their conclusion is that what we're looking at are actually entities from another level of existence, that they're not ghosts, they're not the spirits of dead earthlings or dead humans, I should say, that they are beings that exist, always have existed on a different level of existence, and we're just now being able to detect their presence through digital photography and some other means. So, I mean, there's a lot of possibilities besides just the fact that we're dealing with, you know, the spirits of, of, of people who have passed on. Well, I just want to say one thing. I'm looking right here at the Beyond Words website, Orb Project, the Orb Project, and what you have on the cover is a picture of a, of a dust particle. It's quite essential picture of a dust particle. Um, well, we've always had those. They've always, they've always been here, and um, that's right. Know, I dust guess has they, always been around. 
Well, you see, the thing is, I mean, it, it, and this is something that comes up all the time. People seem to focus on, you know, pictures of dust particles, yet there is a piece of footage out of, uh, out of North Carolina, out of the Black Forest, uh, of a true plasma orb close to a camera moving in an intelligent way, leaving a contrail behind it. It's, to my mind, it's the most compelling piece of paranormal video I've ever seen, period. In any realm, um, well, these guys it, in the book, they, I say, yeah. they, they talk about the idea of intelligent motion, intelligent design, right. the trails that you mentioned, um, the idea of reflect, not reflecting light, but emitting no, light, generating okay. it exactly. Yes, exactly. Right. That's what they talk about right. in the book, right? But like, it, you see, but you know, they say don't judge a book by its cover. I look at the cover, I'm seeing an amplified piece of of dust, and mm -hmm. so I'm sort of done. I mean. And, yeah. and I think that's the problem here. You know, when we try to talk about it's it's very unfortunate. These things pollute the pool. And so, you know, um, when, when you guys talk about this topic, how do you go about trying to change the tone of the conversation to look at these things more seriously? And seriously, I mean, what happens when someone comes up to you and says, OK, I want to understand this. I want to think about this rationally. But I've got a book here on this. And on the cover, there's a picture of a piece of dust. How do you respond to that? What, what's your, you know, when you guys talk publicly about this, how do well, you handle this? First thing I'd say, since, since I actually read that book cover to cover, is I would say, you know, try to get past the cover. And like they say, don't judge a book by its cover. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> because, because truthfully, the book I think is well done. I, I may, I may agree with it, not agree with it, but I think it's, I think it's a solid piece of work. I don't think it's based on speculation. I think it's based on a lot of, of work of these two guys um, who did not know each other together, by the way. They pulled their evidence afterwards. But in any case, it's, it's very difficult. You know, first of all, none of us know the answer. None of us have a lock on what the truth is. So the most you can say to people, and I always say it, is just, just to be open to as many ideas as you possibly can because we don't know. I mean, I don't know where the answer is going to come from. It may be the most far-fetched explanation that we can come up with that might, in fact, be the truth. Or it could be what we're talking about now. It may be that, you know, EVPs and orbs and those kinds of things are actually, in fact, solid evidence of ghosts, you know. But nobody knows right now. And there's not necessarily one explanation that covers all the kinds of phenomena that we've talked about. Uh, I mean, EVP and orbs, as John is, is sort of uh, alluding to indirectly, they might not be related to each other at all. Uh, we associate them with each other, and we do use terms like ghost and haunting uh, and ghost hunting. Uh, but I think that uh, there's there's a certain amount of peril with being too dogmatic about this and deciding that, this can only be one way. Well, if we decide it can only be one way, we've decided that apropos of nothing. That's a leap of faith, and that's fine uh, if people choose to make that leap. But like many leaps of faith, it would be completely arbitrary. Uh, so, sure, when I go out and I, I get my pictures of my orbs and I get my EVP and I experience these things, I express what I've experienced in terms of the vocabulary that we are currently using to discuss these phenomena. That doesn't mean that I'm ruling out that the vocabulary needs to evolve and it might change altogether. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. 
Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack, Attack. of the Rockwells. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans a galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack of the Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to three of the authors of the America's Haunted Road Trip series, four books in the series out now, four more books coming out next year. We have John Kachuba, Laura Laddick, and Michael Rahola, and we're trying to make heads or tails of this ghost phenomenon. I haven't seen anything weird at all although I met David a few times. David has met me, but he's also seen weird things. And I just want to qualify something here. I'm looking at the, um, the author's bios for this book, and this fellow Klaus Heinemann sounds like a really interesting, intelligent guy. I mean, he is, is, you know, based on this one little paragraph here where he, uh, he's involved in fluid dynamics, materials development, nanotechnology, under contract with NASA. You know, he's got several patents, written a, uh, a university-level textbook on solar energy and water purification. This sounds really great. Klaus has written and lectured extensively on the commonly perceived rift between science and spirituality. One of uh, our more popular interviews was with uh, a scientist, Bernard Heche, who's uh, involved in exactly the same kind of research. So, you know, okay, now that I'm reading the bios of these two guys, uh, the other guy, uh, Michael Ledwith, uh, he was in the movie What the Bleep Do We Know, so I've got some issues oh. there already. Yeah, well, not a movie I think much of, um, to be honest. Uh, well, it, you know, the, part of the problem in discussing this stuff, we talk about this on the Paracast all the time, is that you, you often get very compelling people who then get in the pool with lunatics. And when you mix the two together, right, right. It, it poisons everything. And, and we try to, you know approach all of this with a very uh, sort of a an intelligent skeptical yet open-minded approach i mean you know when we we, we talked to zaphis i mean every other word out of his mouth was you have to keep an open mind and i could feel my brain falling out of my head as he was saying um you know yes you have to keep an open mind about this stuff but you know uh, uh don't be too graphic david this is not csi 
Because, you know, when you think of brains falling out, you think of CSI. Dude, I do have my brain play on my head every five or six minutes, so I'm, I'm kind of used to it. But, no, seriously, uh, you know, this is why, you know, I was asking about how do you respond when people ask it, you know, about a, a, the cover of a book. You know, the Paracast is, is, is doing some real work trying to get a bit more of a solid, serious discussion going. And, and as you guys know, I mean, you know, you've written books about this, which means you've devoted a chunk of your life to this. Right. Which means that, you know, you then have to respond to friends. So let's ask a personal question to the three of you. How do your families and your friends deal with your interest in these topics? Well, now that I'm published, they're happy. Well, okay. Now, Laura, we want, I don't want to say that you're ditching husbands as a result of writing these books, right? Oh, no. No, I mean, you know, I, it's what I have found with the ghost hunting, seriously, is like, you know how actors have to be married or partnered with other actors because of their insane schedules of shooting on location and being apart from one another and... And I think they have to date or be married with one another because they will have a core understanding of the demands of their job. And what I've come to find with ghost hunting, even with dating, I mean, it's, I'd be better off partnering with another ghost hunter because he would understand when I say, hey, I'm sorry, I can't go out that night. I got an investigation. Not just to roll their eyes and think, oh, not that stupid ghost hunting again, you know. <laughs> so I'd be better off with someone. Although I'm, I've found now, when that I'm in my 40s, it's definitely more frightening to date than it is to ghost hunt. So I'm sticking with the ghost. And, <laughs> you, you can know, always date a ghost. That. that always does it. You guys, like, I don't want to bring my work home with me <clears throat> either. Yeah. Well, I can say in answer to your question that uh, you know my family, for the most part, is not the kind of family that that runs around saying, oh, we see ghosts or have had any experiences at all like that, or even talk about ghosts, even think about ghosts. But after my first book, Ghost Hunting Ohio, that was 2004, and you know, here we are, 2008, and I've written three books about ghosts since then. It's interesting because my family now has started to talk about things. Um, two of my daughters told me about experiences they had. Yeah, they were at the University of Connecticut at, at different times, and they both related, um, you know, stories that were different in nature, but were what they considered kind of a ghostly nature. My sister-in-law, um, after the book came out, said, oh, well, you know, I grew up in a house that had a ghost in it. They had none of them. My, my daughters or my sister-in-law had ever said a word about these until the book came out. So the first book came out. So what I'm thinking is happening here is what happened for my family, and it hopefully will happen for readers generally, of not just my books, but Laura, Mike, everybody in our series, is that they'll start thinking about this and start thinking, hey, you know, that reminds me. You know, would that happen to me five years ago when I heard that or I saw that? You know, maybe that was that kind of experience. And so get them to open up a little bit more, talk about the experience a little bit more, think about it, um, study it, be more involved and learn more about it. So my response, I guess, basically has been, uh, I think it's been a positive one for my family because it started to get them talking about things like this. Mm -hmm. How about you, uh, some positive for for me. I mean, I would say that uh, just trying to make my way as a writer in general and a freelance writer in particular has always caused more strain between me and my loved ones than ghost hunting ever did. But this has been a good thing for my wife and I. But I'm just wondering here, you have children? Uh, I have children, yeah. Okay, so is it a situation where, for example, they ask in school, what's your dad do? Oh, he's a ghost hunter. 
Oh. Well, my daughters are 22 and 23, so uh, nobody's asking them anything uh, like that. But, yeah, my kids, they think uh, the kinds of things my wife and I do are pretty neat. They're always talking about uh, the kinds of things we do and the trips that we're taking. And, yeah, sure, I suspect their friends are, are kind of incredulous. You know, when our daughters say, oh, yeah, my parents are driving around Virginia, going to haunted places and writing a book called Ghost Hunting Virginia. I think their friends probably uh, think that's kind of funny. But the kids uh, uh, have always been real proud of the kinds of stuff that we've done. But this has been a good experience for me and my wife because it's something we've been able to do together. Uh, more than half the places that I covered in the book, she went to with me. So we got to drive around the state of Virginia together and visit a lot of these sites together. So it's something that we do uh, as a couple. So it's been good for us from that point of view. Michael, now here's the thing, though. In reading the book, there's a recurring theme of your your wife saying, I'll wait for you in the car. You, you go do what you're going to do, and I'll be here. I, I don't know. She still won't explain to me why she waits in the car so many places. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. She says she's not scared of the haunted places. I don't know why she won't get out of the car and come in with me. I don't think she's scared. She's not overly superstitious. I don't know why she won't get out of the car. Though uh, there, there is one little anecdote I didn't put in the book. We were out in Winchester, Virginia at a uh, cemetery, and I was grabbing my gear and getting ready to get out of the car. And I turned to her and I said, you know, sweetie, if you wait in the car, I've got to put it in the book. And we'd been out on the road about four days and she had just about had enough of me. And she turned to me and she said, if you're a dick, do you need to put that in the book, too? <laughs> and I said, oh, I like her already. I said, no, I checked with my editors and they said it's my book and that didn't need to go into it. <laughs> I don't remember taking that out, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, I never put it in, John. I never put it in. No. Let's take a look at the book. David, do you have the book that you can just double-check? Uh, yeah, I've, I've got both books in front of me. And, and Michael, just before you know, we finish the show, I did want to ask you, You know, when I saw that your book was, uh, was based in Virginia, I thought to myself, okay, when I first heard about this, before I got the book, I thought, all right, I'm guessing that Arlington's right there at the top. You know, you talk about you know a place that's got to be haunted. Sure. So tell our listeners, if you would, what you uh, what you found out at the Arlington National Cemetery, a place where you would assume it'd be very haunted. Well, I think the most interesting thing that I found at Arlington is that a number of the phenomena that people have experienced there have been positive phenomena, and you don't find that. I don't find a lot of examples of that. But whereas ghostly phenomena tend to be creepy or off-putting or scary, uh, the kind of phenomena people have experienced at Arlington National Cemetery has quite often been very positive. They felt uh, a positive energy force or something touched them that invigorated them or inspired them. Uh, and I never personally experienced anything like that when I was there. And frankly, I do get a real morose feeling when I'm at Arlington. Uh, and the fact that they're doing something like 27 funerals a day nowadays uh, and had to open a whole new section doesn't make it a cheerier place. It's not a cheery place. But as far as the kinds of phenomena, paranormal phenomena that people have reported, a lot of them have been positive in nature rather than uh, negative in nature. And, and you know, let me go back to family just one second. I want to get a plug-in for my dad. He is actually, uh, I don't know, he was never really uh, very much in favor of me pursuing uh, a life as a writer, but he's actually been very much involved uh, in the research I've done for the Virginia book, and he's the one that actually went out and did the primary investigations for two of the chapters in there. So I want to give credit where credit is due. Uh, the chapters on um, Fort Monroe, the house, jeez, uh, I don't even have a copy of the book in front of me. That's okay, but we'll just thank your dad. Your dad's yep, yep, first yep. name is? Mike. Mike okay. Yeah. 
Hey, Mike, thank you for being oh, a great dad. <laughs> for putting up with your son, okay? That's got to be a classic. We're just about out of time. John, give our listeners a couple of minutes information about the series. I assume we can get copies at your favorite booksellers, Amazon, sure. etc. Sure. America's Haunted Road Trip is available. Well, actually, it's available in the major bookstores in the various states like New Jersey, Virginia, Ohio, and Illinois. You can get them in Barnes & Noble, Borders, you know, all the major bookstores. Uh, but if anybody doesn't live in the States, um, sure, Amazon.com has all four. And they're also on BarnesandNoble.com and, and almost any one of the book uh, online booksellers. They're very easy to get. The publisher is uh, Clarice. Uh, if anybody needs that information, but uh, they're out there and easy to get. Yeah, as I said, we have a website, too, which is simply americashauntedroadtrip.com. And we and have a link to it already up good. at thepowercast.com. So, sure. If, so if you go to the powercast.com website and you see the words America's Haunted Road Trip, you click on that and guess where you go. And I did this while talking to you people. I'm just multitasking up a fair the well here. Now, you have four more books coming out next year. They will be right. on... They'll be in the fall, and the states that will be covered will be Kentucky, Maryland, Texas, and Pennsylvania. And we have, you know, Mike, again, is going to, Mike Verhall is going to do our uh, Maryland book for us. We have Rose, uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, well-known writer and investigator of Pennsylvania. Patty Starr, another investigator will do Kentucky. And we have April Slaughter in Texas. Parasource is her group, and they'll be doing, she'll be doing Texas. So we have some good writers coming up with those books as well, too, to match the ones we have now. Now, John, are you going to be doing any more writing of those books? I probably will be. Um, I'm not sure. I might be doing Florida or some of the other ones myself. But at this point, uh, the editing job is, is pretty monumental, too, for four books. So I'm not sure. Mm. I do hope the publisher reimburses you for travel expenses. Uh, <laughs> or it isn't you know, deducted from your publisher's advance. You know, Book yeah. authors often get an advance, ladies and gentlemen, from publishers, but sometimes they deduct expenses. Oh, travel expenses, $20,000. Well, now you owe the publisher ten. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we never we never talk in terms of numbers quite that big in this business. I'm afraid. Yeah, so we don't have to worry about that. Listen, I've written a lot of computer books. And I can tell you that if you could get ten thousand dollars for a book, you're doing really nicely. Oh yeah. They oh, yeah. they think you've written a lot of books, and I have, and David's written some books. They think, my God, he's got to be rich. No, ladies and gentlemen. You know, it's not like the kind of books you write. This is a kind of book that can go on, persevere for many years. When you write a computer book, you know, six months later, it's obsolete. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's just say we've got to have passion uh, to do what we do. <laughs> okay. We enjoyed and we sense your passion. John Kachuba, Laura Laddick, and Michael Varhola, collectively working on a series called America's Haunted Road Trip. Thank you all for joining us this week on the Powercast. Thank you. Thank you guys. so much. Good fun. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.